0: My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 3, The Bird Migrates Home. A perpetual holiday is a good working definition of hell. George Bernard Shaw. The large green rental car seemed like a singular source of life north of Concord, New Hampshire. It trucked along the lonely stretch of highway through the White Mountains, towards St. Argus. The White Mountains were living up to their much-heralded name. Bare trees, thousands of them, were stuck in the snow like matchsticks over the glaciated slopes. The road had been recently cleared of snow, but the storm had not abated since they left Concord. It was all so remote. Marta felt so alone, trapped in the dead of winter's fury. But Jamie was a bullion. He had been leading the children and singing songs and joking. Despite the gaiety, Marta was downcast. She had not joined them in the song, nor was she ready to play their games. The dread of crossing the town line, the sign in particular, left her mind ravaged. As the wiper blades kept cadence with the songs, Marta stared out the window at the bleak countryside. Both Jamie and the children were getting hoarse as they finished the last chorus to Yellow Submarine. They were laughing and giggling as Marta thought about the town that lie over the mountains. I have that feeling, Jamie. I have that feeling. When I have that feeling, things can come true. I feel like we're never going to see Los Angeles again. Yet, it's like this has all happened before. It's all so lonely up here. I've forgotten how lonely it is up here. Why do I fear St. Argus? We were happy up here. Times were simpler in St. Argus. Weissman. Maybe it's Weissman. He must still remember that night. He wouldn't tell Jamie, not after all these years. Weissman has been up here all this time. Good old Bernardo. Always the cynic, but he'd give you the shirt off his back. Poor Bernie. Wanted to be a lawyer, and all I got was a crummy teaching job. It's so bright, poor Bernie. Maybe we should go back to Concord, to Boston, and back to L.A. But why? Why am I trying to stop this trip? Why? Marta saw the road ahead becoming black and white. She was about to have another flash. It was that sign moving toward her like a warning buoy in the night? The sign was covered, smeared with something, possibly paint steaming, paint, and above. oh man Pendleton was above the sign. Just his head, severed from his body and stuck on the top of the sign. His eyes rolled upward in an eerie glow from the headlights, and his mouth just hung open, as if all life had been forced out of him. Blood, dripping blood, pouring from his mouth, smothering the letters of the sign, and flowing onto the snowbank while steamy and wet. She had to stop the flash. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it, she yelled, as if she came out of it, putting her hand over her mouth in panic. Honey, what is it? yelled Jamie, who was in the midst of laughing with the children. Tears filled her dark eyes as he grabbed her cold hand. She could only shake her head, as if that would evaporate the flash from her consciousness. But the remnants of the flash remained, etched in her brain. It was horrendous, but she had to keep it to herself. It's all right, she maintained. I just had a sharp pain and a headache. That's all. I'll be fine. Jamie, the storm looks bad. Maybe we should go back to Concord to spend the night. Uh... No, it's letting up, replied Jamie. Besides, we're almost there. Only another half an hour or so. Right, right. Can we sing more, Daddy? No, not right now. Mommy isn't feeling well later. We'll sing later on. Oh, Mommy isn't feeling well. Go ahead, put the blame on me again. Mommy isn't feeling well. Doesn't he realize how I really feel? And how I just saw the old man's head on the sign? Oh, God, what's going on? God, give me strength. My mind must be filled with demons. Rats, ready to tear my skull apart. And he says Mommy's not feeling well. We'll sing later. Marta closed her eyes and bit her lip to stop from crying. Jamie was unaware of what she was feeling and totally imperceptive to the fact that she just had another flash. He could see as he looked over at her that she was tired and needed the vacation. She would have to rest during the two weeks in St. Argus. It would be her time. Anything she wanted for those two weeks. Her two weeks. The flashes were all too real despite the black and white images. It was becoming increasingly difficult to separate them from the normal course of things. Marta was genuinely fearful of the future now, not just skeptical about it. There was some unknown evil ahead in the tiny New England town where she had spent the early years of her life. The Winquisit River, which flowed by St. Argus, was visible across the fields to the right of the road. Its surface was icy now in spots, but the ice did not stop its flow southward from the mountains to its outlet on Long Island Sound, and the river cut through the gap in the mountain which bordered the southern end of St. Argus. The mountains looked different from the rear, smooth, drawn out, and slanted, unlike the sharp weathered slopes facing the town. Marta looked ahead at the mountains again. The sight of the mountains meant the sign, the bloody sign, still in her flashes. It would be just over the ridge at least there was still daylight. flash had taken place at night, so it couldn't have been real. It must have been a manifestation of her mind, a black and white dream world. The road followed the slope of the mountains. Jamie brought the car up the winding steep incline toward the town of St. Argus. This was the one entrance to St. Argus, the other being miles ahead along the same highway, but mostly in the northern extremity of the valley. The highway twisted high above the river at this end, rising under the snow-filled ledges of dark, basalt rock. The snow had stopped, just as Jamie had predicted, and the clouds had dissipated. The late afternoon winter light passed over the top of the ridges, highlighting the riverbanks across the way. As they reached the crest of the mountain, the Winquisit valley came into view, in full sunlight, like the projected light in a theater. The sign was only a few hundred yards down the other side. Marta refused to look up, preferring to stare at the carpeting of the car, but in her mind she was imagining what could be coming into view. There it is, cried Jamie. The town sign looks like the same one, too. All right, how about that, guys? We're almost there. Are we really almost there, Daddy? asked Sandy. Both children were growing bored with the long trip. Really, Daddy? asked Mitchy. Looks more of the same to me. Well, just look at the sign, he said as he finally shut off the wipers. Oh, there can't be anything there. Jamie can see it. It must be all right. It's all in my imagination. I've got to look. I have to look. Martyr slowly raised her hand. The compulsion was too great. There it was, green and white. No blood. No severed head. Everything was all right. The flash wasn't real. Only a misguided thought. At least for now. Welcome to St. Argus, New Hampshire, home of Pendleton Industries, building a better life for the future. The name Pendleton Industries seemed to squelch all of Jamie's enthusiasm. Like a bullet, the original purpose of the trip snapped back into his mind. Within hours, he would be out at the plant, his father's plant, all for the sake of something that happened long ago. It was something he couldn't forget. His mind drifted back in time, back thirty years, to a day in the parlor of the Pendleton mansion. It was hazy now, but the scene came back to him. It was his mother, long since passed away, painted with makeup and bright red hair. She beamed all over turning to his father, who was wearing his navy business suit. There were dozens of other little boys and girls, all dressed as if they were grown-ups, He could hear the useless, trivial conversations, and above it all, he could hear the old man. His hair was dark then and his face less wrinkled, and that craggy, grinding voice boasting and bragging loudly about his little boy. He's going to follow right in my footsteps. A fine lad. He'll have the best education. Prep schools right through Harvard business. Then he'll return and sit by my side, my right hand, He'll inherit all that's mine when he returns." The lazy, soft image of the parlor floated free of his mind. Jamie Pendleton was returning now, not to sit at his father's right hand, but to destroy everything he stood for, to prove his father as sinister and money-grubbing as he knew the old man to be. Carr car was silent now as the entire valley was spread out before them. It was a fertile, oval-shaped basin, cupped on the outside edges by a row of massive mountain peaks. Just below the forested slopes of the southern regions were the beginnings of flat farmlands covering the five-mile width of the valley. Smoke rose from the chimneys of century-old farmhouses, and the long wooden barns and silos were covered with snow from the storm. Families had owned these houses through generations, working the same fields as their forebears, embalmed in tradition and unyielding to outside thoughts. Only the new cable television system brought any outside influence at all to the age-old way of doing things in the valley. The southern farmlands were interrupted by acres of forest land, swampy in some parts, and spread across the valley toward the center of town ahead and the Winquisit River to the east. The highway cut directly through the woods and into the residential sections. Here tree-lined roads were dotted with a mixture of homes constructed over the years Most of the town's 5,000 people lived in these areas, which surrounded the town proper. Three buildings stood prominent above the town. Above the retail shops and businesses downtown was a massive stone block church, situated atop a small knoll. Its spiraling tower paralleled a high clock tower across the square. Overshadowing all of this was a building that never should have been built. But the Pendletons pushed the construction of this 26-story brick library for the college in the northern part of town. In any event, the three buildings gave the isolated town a unique character all its own. Jamie's eyes were not on the church or the clock tower, nor was he looking at the library in the distance. He didn't even glance at his father's mansion atop the hill west of town. Jamie was drawn to the river like a returning bird, migrating back to its home. Past the smokestacks of the Pendleton textile mills, downriver from the logging interest, was the power plant. It was actually a series of brick buildings across the river and up the top of a winding asphalt road. The central building, four or five stories high, was abutted by smaller administrative buildings. The heart of the plant extended in steps, the long cement structures leading down to the river's edge. If there was anything else in that plant or under it, Jamie would have to find it later that evening. And if he did find something unauthorized, it could spell the beginning of the end for James Pendleton I. "'Home, sweet home,' said Marta, cynically as she looked at the town. "'Is that the town, Daddy?' asked Mitchie as the car rolled down the other side of the mountain. "'Well, guys, you'll have to look quickly,' he said as the buildings dipped behind the forest. "'Too late. You missed it. You missed the church. "'We'll be there in a couple minutes.' past the Victorian homes and into the town. The what? asked his son. I'll show you, Mitchy, when we get there. He smiled as they reached the bottom of the hill and the flat valley floor. The remoteness of the town was evident now. From this angle, the mountains loomed overhead as an irrefutable barrier, because the nearest town was 25 miles via the highway to the south. But the wilderness over the mountains extended for over 100 miles. To live in St. Argus, New Hampshire, meant accepting lack of outside contact. They continued down the highway toward the town, passing the tips of fence posts in the snow with farmhouses set back from the road. Unlike California, where distances between neighbors were measured in feet, neighbors were miles apart on the farms. The lack of life seemed to make Marta uneasy again. When she saw a man carrying wood from his barn, her tensions eased somewhat. This was the first sign of life they had seen in hours. Well, you're here, Martyr. The scenery is beautiful, all covered with glistening snow, almost a dreamland. I should be calm, like the land. But I'm not. That head, the old man's head, still in my mind. It's blazing fire, the bloody foaming dogs and the hanging man with no face. Crazy. I'm here and I have to enjoy myself despite these flashes. I have to make the grade. Now was the time or they'll dump me in the sanitarium for sure. I have to straighten myself out. Now. Now! She gazed back to where they had just trekked over the mountains. Even that area seemed safe to her now. It was the first step back to Los Angeles. She turned as they passed the last farmhouse before the woods. The woods were dreary. The dried yellow grass blew in the breeze and blue jays swooped down from the sky in search of food this with the sun's low angle to more primitive nature, a feeling of the ages. Martyr had remembered the woods as they were in summer, a swampy, pungent area full of mosquitoes. Everything was frozen now in a winter wasteland. A few minutes later, the residential homes came into view as the car emerged from the woods. Children were playing together outside, making forts and building snowmen. It was a marked change from the farmlands. The houses were bunched together here, the old and the new, as the highway widened toward the center of St. Argus. That is a Victorian, said Jamie, as the children stared out the car window at the stately homes with wrought iron fences. These homes were mostly used by the college faculty now, and were nestled closely all the way into town. The clock tower and church hovered over the town proper. In the center was a square, with a small rockery on the northern side, and a snow-covered green to the south. Park benches had been placed all around the square, and were usually fitted with townspeople. What are those? asked Sandy as she tilted her head upward toward the high clock tower to her left. Those, my dear, are Roman numerals, Jamie told her as he too looked up at the clock face. He could remember very well seeing the illuminated clock face from many parts of town, and he recalled the deep, lasting toll that shook the town on the hour and the half hour. Jamie put on the blinker and turned right along the square. He looked up at the huge stone church that overshadowed everything. It had been constructed by the townspeople over a hundred years before, and its heavy granite stones served as a steadfast reminder to the value placed on religion by the town. They passed by the church and up the hill directly to its right. Jamie downshifted the car, slipping on the icy road as he brought it to the top. On the right, was the large yellow home with three floors and a wood spire on the side facing the town. He pulled the car to the side of the road and quickly cut the engine as he looked at his watch. It was six o'clock. He had two hours before he had to be at the plant. They stepped from the car just as a ubiquitous tolling began on the hour. Jamie squinted in the orange sunlight, gazing across the clock to the top of the church steeple and down to the wrought iron fence which led to the cemetery in the rear. Jamie, I want the suitcases inside, insisted Marder as she got out of the car. I don't trust having them out here. Very well, said Jamie, even though he could see no danger in the suitcases being stolen. He was, however, very eager to placate her. When are we going to see Grandma and Grandpa? Asked Mitchie as he looked up at his mother. Right after we spent some time with Uncle Bernie she said as she patted him on the head and went around to the trunk. Weissman, who had seen them pull up, came bounding down the stairs from the second floor. He hid behind the door curtains for a short time, like a once fine actor coming back on stage for his last chance at a comeback, and he was ready to come back. He had shaved, he had gotten his hair trimmed neatly, and he wore a pair of new jeans and a blue western shirt. Marta was standing in front of the trunk, and he studied her in the twilight. She looked a little heavier, but in all, she hadn't changed that drastically after all those years. He took a deep breath, having been off the booze for five hours, and opened the front door to the house. Well, it's about time he got back here, Pendleton, he called to Jamie as he skipped down the front stairs. Marta's head riveted to the left, passing years hit hidden with full force. But it wasn't because of Wiseman's change in appearance, rather, It was her own life she could see passing before her and Weissman seemed as spunky as ever, smiling as he came around the car to shake hands with Jamie. Bernie! Bernardo! You look great! He slapped him on the shoulder. Now kids, this is your Uncle Bernie. Bernie, this is Mitchie and Sandy. Hello, uh, Mitchie and Sandy. Your Uncle Bernie has a treat for you waiting upstairs. "'A treat!' yelled Sandy as she looked for her father's approval. "'It's a uh, big surprise, and you'll see it once you get inside!' said Weissman as he patted both children on the head. The at this time had turned and thrust both her arms against the car. As Jamie and Bernie kept talking, she was stymied by the black and white images unfolding before her eyes. People were chasing her again. She was running through the snow, tripping and falling as she tried to make her escape. But they were after her, She was just far enough away so she could not see who they were. Nor could she understand the terror which had taken over her body. She had to get away. Breathing deeply, she saw the flash end and felt her face immersed in the sunlight just as Weissman came around the side of the car. "'Well, Marta, aren't you going to say hello to me?' He asked as her brown eyes seemed to lock with his. They were both thinking about that night buried so deep in time. "'Hey, you look fabulous!' Really fabulous. Same old Bernie, full of compliments, she said, trying to recover from the flash. And a lot of other things, too, he whispered as he bent over and briefly kissed her on the lips. He kept looking at her, astonished at how she had retained her youth. Amazing, he smiled as he turned back to Jamie. Martyr wants to bring the suitcases inside while we visit, complained Jamie as he lifted them from the trunk. Hey, sure, no problem. Said Weissman. Let me help you with that. Let's get out of the cold. We've got a lot to talk about, and the kids have that surprise. How long have you been up here, Bernie? asked Jamie as they climbed the porch stairs. I don't know, five or six years? I can't remember exactly. Hey, once you're over 30, the mind goes cuckoo. Don't remind me, said Marta from behind. She had stoically accepted the flash and was trying to act normal. Once upstairs, Weissman turned to Jamie. "'Just set him down anywhere,' said Weissman as they entered his apartment. "'Now, if you kids look at the top right drawer of the dresser in the bedroom, you'll find your surprise.' "'Can we, Dad?' asked Mitchie one final time. "'Sure, go right ahead,' he told them as he looked toward Marta and shrugged his shoulders. Weissman led them into the bedroom on the left, and seconds later they came running out of the bedroom with two triple-sized candy bars in their hands. Well, so much for supper, said Martyr, folding her arms across her chest and smiled at Weissman. Yeah, it we'll would never stop you if I remember you and chocolate correctly, he said in jest. Okay, Bernardo, you watch it, she laughed for the first time in a while. Oh no, she said as she frowned. I forgot my pocketbook. I have to go get it in the car. I'll be right back, she said as she opened the door and hurried down the stairs, having the compulsion that somebody would take her pocketbook. "'Well, Bernardo, I understand you're teaching at the high school,' said Jamie. "'We're uh, sticking with surnames,' began Weissman as he put his arm on Jamie's shoulder. "'If you will accompany me into the front room, your majesty,' he laughed. That was the name he had given Jamie because of his background and rearing. Marta reached the car and pulled out the pocketbook. As she turned toward the house, however, there was no sky, no house, no reality. "'No reality.' She felt herself up to the waist in cold water. And they were back. They were chasing her. She could see the people now, mutilated people, coming over the water toward her, and they were moaning and groaning in pain as they called her name. All of them were set on killing her with as much pain as possible, but then it was ending. She spun around from the car and ran toward the walk. It was icy and she lost her footing and came crashing down on the cement. The blood trickled from the side of her face and onto the walk. She wiped it with a tissue from her pocketbook and got to her feet. It wasn't a deep cut, and it wasn't painful, but it was an aggravation she could do without. What really scared her was the fact that these flashes were coming with greater frequency, and the gruesome images that had been conjured up in her mind threatened to split her skull apart at the seams. She wanted to get inside where it was safe. blood had begun to drip down her face again, but her only concern was to be in the company of other human beings. She ran up the stairs, almost slipping again, and she pushed open the door to the apartment. The kitchen was empty and so was the hallway. There were reflections on the front wall from the fireplace. They must be in that room. So she snuck into the bathroom and gently nudged on the faucet. She wanted so much to tell Jamie what had just happened, but she didn't trust him. He would tell Johnson, and Johnson would use the information against her. Then they would isolate her from other people and be away from normal people. The cut on her face had to be covered, and she cleaned it thoroughly with the toilet paper. Next, she picked up Weissman's steptic pencil off the sink and closed the cut so cunningly they wouldn't even know what had happened out front. She quickly flushed the paper down the toilet and stepped into the hallway. Well, i got the pocketbook all right, she said as she entered the front room. Oh, that's good said jamie callously i was just telling bernie about my job at usc you know bernie i couldn't have done it without martyr she's one hell of a woman he said as he hugged her with his arm supported me all the way have to have support said weissman as he looked at martyr again she felt self-conscious because of the cut as she walked toward the blazing fire she raised her hands and felt the heat with her palms That's one thing I've missed in California, a good fire. When's the last time we had a good fire, Jamie? Not in a while, honey, replied Jamie as he pointed his finger at Weissman, who was still admiring Martyr as she took off her coat. As Jamie continued speaking, Weissman turned quickly to listen. You see, Bernie, chemistry permeates every aspect of our lives. Every day we are vitally dependent on the things that have been made through chemistry. You sound like a walk-in commercial, Jamie," said the blunt Weissman as he led him over to the sofa. Now I want to know how you two are doing personally, your everyday life. Well, this is my everyday life, said Jamie as he sat down, unaffected by Weissman's sarcasm. I would say on the average I put in about 70 hours a week at the university. Yeah, well, when the hell do you have time for anything else? snapped Weissman as he kept Martyr in the corner of his eye. I guess i just find the time, right kids? He asked, but they were glued to the television set and not about to answer him. Martyr rocked back and forth in Weissman's rocking chair. Martyr felt as if she were just a convenience for Jamie, a stabilizing factor in his world. She was somebody who was always there, whether she wanted to be or not. Join us next time for My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.